Well, good morning, everyone. Is that coming through okay? How's that now? Can you hear me? Fantastic. So um, just a quick reminder, if you're uh, age kindergarten up to um, second grade, uh, you can now go for your kids' ministry. So if that's you, go and have fun. Enjoy yourselves. Uh, my name's Frank. Um, I've been a member here at the Hallows with my wife um, for the last four years. Um, and I've got the, uh, the real privilege of uh, opening up the scriptures this morning um, and sort of taking us through our time together in this way. So let's, uh, let's dive in. Let's, let's do uh, just that. So you might have heard or read um, that our culture is placing a greater and greater emphasis on happiness. The ASA reports that a full 25% of Gen Z respondents cited that being happy is their number one goal in life. Nearly double the number who cited being financially secure as their top goal. Ironically, you might have also heard or read that in our culture, that is so obsessed with happiness, research is actually showing that anxiety and depression are on the rise. So there's a widening gulf between what people really want and what people's lived experience is. People want to be happy, but people's actual experience of life is, is only trending downwards away from the happy life that they're striving towards. Now this gap, this chasm, it could leave some people, lead some people to despair, throwing their hands up, and saying, I quit. I'm never going to be happy. It's an impossible ideal. I may as well just resign myself to a miserable life. Now, does the Bible have anything to say about all of this? Is it even a Christian concept to be happy? Or is that far too shallow an ideal? Can we find in the Bible's pages an answer to this most powerful question, how can we be happy? Well, turn with me in your Bibles if you have one, or your phone if it's on air, or it's going to come up on the screen as well. And follow with me through Psalm 1. I believe that in this Psalm, we get the secret to a happy life. And as is often the way with the Bible, it's not always the answer that we may be expecting. So, so follow along with me. Uh, this is in the CSB version. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers? Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. 
Without going into unnecessary detail, it's worth just noting that the Psalms, actually Jake said this a minute ago, the Psalms are a collection of poems and songs written by many authors over many centuries, and they were intended to be sung and read in public gatherings, just like we did earlier on today. C.S. Lewis writes in his short book, Reflections on the Psalms, that the Psalms must be read as poems if they are to be understood. Poems are able to convey much deeper meaning than a literal description of something, and they do so in so few words, just six verses. The fact then that the Bible contains no less than 150 Psalms make it an almost inexhaustible bank of spiritual wisdom. Charles Spurgeon calls it the treasury of David, so great is its wealth. So where does Psalm 1 fit into the treasury? Well, given its place at the beginning of the book, it can almost be read as a preface psalm, in that it contains a condensed summary of the book of Psalms as a whole. John Trapp writes that the psalmist says more about true happiness in Psalm 1 than, listen to this, any one of the philosophers or all of them put together They did but beat around the bush. God hath here put the bird into our hand. So let's dive into this psalm together and see what God wants to teach us through it. Let me say a prayer for us as we do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and for this chance to gather. Thank you for everybody here in this room and for those who are participating online. I I pray that you would illuminate this magnificent psalm for us today. That you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us a deep insight into what you are saying to us through this ancient text. Thank you that your word is as relevant today as it has always been. Nourish and strengthen us today, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. How happy is the one? What an opening statement. It's pure dynamite. How happy is the one? This psalm contains in it the road to true and lasting happiness. The word happy here can also be translated blessed, and it's a rich word in biblical teaching. And it refers to the state of peace, wholeness, welfare, and tranquility. Now, that sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? Peace, wholeness, welfare, and tranquility. It sounds like a distant ideal rather than something that will ever really be true in our messy, broken lives. You may even have thought that as soon as I began to read Psalm 1, you might have sat back in your chair and said, this isn't a sermon for me. Maybe others in the church, but not me if you knew just how far my life is falling short of this ideal, you would understand that my life will never look like this. But I think this psalm is for everyone in the church. I believe that every single one one of us in this room can have a life that is truly blessed. And I want to show it to you as we dive into the rest of this text. So, verse 1, how happy is the one First and foremost, God 
wants us to be happy. I'll say it again. God wants us to be happy. Sadly, this isn't necessarily a truth that many Christians think of when they reflect about God. One might say, I know God wants me to be holy. I know that God wants me to pray. I know that he wants me to go to church. But few people, when asked what God wants for their lives, would answer, God wants me to be happy. Some Christians almost view their unhappiness as like a badge of true spirituality, reasoning that they are suffering for God, and that if someone is truly happy as a Christian, then they must have some sort of shallow surface view of Christian truth. I find this really sad, honestly, because Psalm 1 isn't the only place in Scripture where we learn that God wants his people to be supremely happy. In fact, I reckon if you were to do a Bible overview, go through the entire Bible and note down every verse that speaks about God wanting happiness and blessedness for his people, you'd probably turn up more material than you're expecting. However, as with so many truths in Scripture, the Bible's answer isn't always obvious, and it requires curiosity and patience to crack open the true meaning of statements such as how happy is the one. So let's continue in verse 1. How happy is the one who does not? Isn't that interesting? The psalmist begins with a negative. You would have maybe expected a list of things to do to be happy, not a list of things not to do. But as usual, God's answer to our question isn't necessarily what we were anticipating. Then the psalmist goes on to describe a three-step process. It starts with walking, then it moves on to standing, and then it finally ends in sitting. And this three-step process can happen to any believer, anyone following God, and it will ultimately rob that believer of happiness. So let's start with walking. It says, happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. Now, walking is often used as a metaphor for the spiritual life, right? People will say, how's your walk? What they mean is, how's your relationship with God going? Interesting then, that the first do not refers to our walk, to the way we are walking. Picture with me two close Christian friends on a hike. They have many hours ahead of them on a quiet trail, and the conversation flows freely, and the hours pass by fast as the pair have a rich time of fellowship on that walk. Meaningful and character-shaping conversations happen on walks. And over the years, the sum total of those conversations will impact one's worldview and one's character. The same is true of walking with those who do not love Jesus. Now, it goes without saying that we should forge deep and lasting friendships with those who don't know God. In fact, the Pharisees, they actually accused Jesus of spending too much time with people that they labeled sinners. So of course we should pursue friendships with unbelievers, but we must be mindful that although some of their advice may be perfectly good, some of it might not necessarily line up with biblical truth, and that our worldviews can subtly shift away 
from one that aligns with the gospel. Let me give you, let me give you an example of such advice. I hear this all the time on Facebook. Your kids are your world. There is nothing more important than their comfort. Now, this advice has a ring of truth to it. Of course, kids are precious. Of course, they're to be treated with the utmost care and attention. But if you're a parent and your kids truly dominate your world, if, in a sense, you orbit around your children, then your thinking has shifted from a godly perspective. If you're a parent, your highest priority should be loving Jesus in all things. He should be the one that you orbit around. And if that means that you sense Jesus maybe leading you into a more deprived neighborhood, perhaps, to love that community and share the gospel, and even if it means that your kids might suffer discomfort in the short term, you trust that in the long term, if Jesus called you there, then this will ultimately be the best thing for your kids. Most importantly, your children will then see that you answer to God and to God alone, and you'll have an opportunity to explain that to them. You, you can explain, look, when he asks us to do things that look hard and challenging, it's so important that we listen to him. It's so important that we hear what he says to us, because ultimately, it's going to lead to a, a refining of our character and further down the road to happiness. So that's step one then. Do not, do not walk in the advice of the wicked. Step two says this. The happy person does not stand in the pathway of sinners. So notice this. If we walk in the advice of the wicked unthinkingly for too long, we'll begin to slow down in our walk. And eventually you find yourself standing. Walking, slowing down, and standing. Standing where? Standing in the pathway of sinners. If the first warning refers to our thinking and worldview, the second refers to our actions. The pathway of sinners refers to any act, be it in thought, word, or deed, that breaks the golden rule, which is summarized by Jesus in Matthew 22. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Though there are almost an infinite ways to break this golden rule, each of us will know the handful of sins that are, that are, that are most dangerous to us, that are, are, the, are the greatest, have the greatest chance of, of knocking us out, of taking us away from a life with Christ. When you're walking in close fellowship with God, it makes it a lot easier not to fall for the allure of these sins. But if our thinking has shifted because we've been uncritically consuming the advice of, the, of those who do not love God, step one, then we leave ourselves vulnerable to falling into sin, step two. Where's the last, where's the last place then? Where's the third place in this three-step process. Well, it says, do not walk, do not stand. And then it says, do not sit in the company of mockers. Now, everybody knows how damaging sitting is to the body, right? 
So much research out there that says that if you spend all day sitting down, it can lead to spinal dysfunction, it can lead to obesity, it can lead to muscle wastage and high blood pressure. It's literally killing a lot of people sitting down too often. So it's interesting, isn't it, that here we, we think about spiritually sitting. What does, that, what does that mean? Well, this is the termination of, of that gentle slide away from God. And it talks about sitting in the seat of mockers. Now, the word mocker in scripture is often used interta- interchangeably with the word scoffer. Which, which I used to laugh at that word when I was younger, by the way, scoffer. I used to think it was a funny word. Um, but here's what it actually means. It mean, and it's not funny what it really means. Because it means to deny and renounce truth and good things, not only to your own detriment, but to that of others. To mock God means to laugh in his face and turn your back on him all at the same time. And it requires a truly hardened heart to mock God. Now, this is, this is a terrifying picture. Ending up in the seat of mockers is a terrifying place to find yourself. It really struck me when I was preparing this that I don't want to be in this place. <laughs> I don't know about you, but sometimes you can think it'll never happen to me. You know, there's no chance that I'll ever go from walking to standing to sitting and end up outside of the kingdom, mocking God, turning my back on him. But I've been a Christian long enough to see this happen to people that I know and love, people who were once on fire for God, people who even led ministries in church, who were an inspiration to those around them, and yet now they mock God, they mock church, they even mock their former selves for believing it all. I've never heard of someone who was a Christian one day and then woke up the next day and just suddenly walked away from it. No, it happens slowly. It happens gradually. It happens insidiously. And so one day, years down the line, you wake up and you're in the seat of mockers. Now, what does this have to do with happiness? You might be asking, well, the best way to lose your happiness is to lose your faith in Christ. As soon as you reject God, true and lasting happiness becomes utterly impossible because you've disconnected yourself from the true joy giver, from the one who said, I've come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. We should see Verse 1, as a gracious and kind warning from God of what not to do if we want to be truly happy. Okay, verse 2, read with me. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. So we've looked at what we are not to do, and here we're told what we should do. Now, Upon first glance, this might look like the classic Sunday school answer. How do you be happy? Read the Bible more. Well done, Johnny. Here's a Jesus sticker. But all joking aside, I think a lot of us would look at this verse, and if we're really honest, we might say, here we go again. Just read the Bible more. 
and all my problems will go away and I'll be happy. It sounds too simple, almost too good to be true. And dare we say it, perhaps it's insufficient advice for true happiness. But let's take, let's take a step back and think about some of the truths laid out in scripture for us. I'll give you three examples. God sees you as his treasured possession. Deuteronomy 14.2. So your value and your worth in life is limitless. Here's another example. Jesus has prepared a room for you and me in God's house. So we know ultimately where our lives are going. Give you one more. Jesus takes our burdens, Matthew 11, 30. So we're freed of any obligation to love God, but we get the joy of responding in worship because it's not what we need to do or have to do, it's because we, what we deeply want to do in response to him. So that's three verses out of a thousand verses that I could have chosen that convey such a radical grace, such a kindness that we've received from God. And if we let the Holy Spirit take those truths and massage them into our souls, it will begin to produce the deep happiness that the psalmist speaks of. It might be worth asking ourselves, which biblical truths do we need to hear right now? Think about that. What do you need to hear from Scripture right now? And also, not just what we need to hear, but which commands of God could we do a better job of following? As Bible-believing Christians, we're often on point with our grace, sorry, we're on point with our doctrine, sorry, on grace and justification by faith alone, and rightly so. But if we have any blind spots in our thinking about happiness, might it be that there are areas of the Lord's instruction that we are ignoring and commands that we are either knowingly or unknowingly disobeying? Take, for example, forgiveness. Jesus famously taught that we are not simply to forgive someone seven times, but 70 times seven, which given the biblical symbolism of the number seven being complete, is basically Jesus saying that you should always forgive people inexhaustibly, always. Now think about this in the context of true happiness. Persistent unforgiveness is like corrosive acid to happiness. As the saying goes, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. In contrast, truly forgiving someone brings freedom and life and happiness into that person's life. Don't get me wrong, forgiveness is really hard. Forgiveness can be really, really tough. But if we think of most of Jesus' fundamental teachings, few of them are easy, but all of them lead to true happiness. Let's take another example, money. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is approached by a rich young man who asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus, sensing that this man's greatest barrier to faith in God was money, said to the man, sell all that you have, 
and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, what happens next is deeply saddening. The rich young man turns away from Jesus, keeps hold of all his wealth. But the scriptures say this, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. He had many possessions. He was one of the richest guys in that community. He had everything and he was grieving. He kept hold of all of it and he was still sad. Isn't that such a powerful picture? He went away sad. Now, is Jesus calling us to give away everything just like this young man? No, I wouldn't say so. I think this passage was a unique insight into what we call idolatry. Idolatry is where we put other things on the throne of our hearts instead of Jesus. And in the rich young man's case, that was his wealth. Idols make it impossible for us to truly follow Jesus with our lives, to truly live in close fellowship with him. Because, to quote Jesus, you cannot serve two masters. Not everyone in this room will have the same idol. But we are all called to be radically generous. Every single one of us are called to think of our money and our possessions as simply on loan from God. We are to steward our resources with prudence, leaning towards the extravagantly generous Acts describes the generosity of the early church in chapter 245 where it says, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It goes on to say that they were exuberant and joyful as they worshipped God. Contrast it with the grieving rich man, exuberant and joyful. Their obedience led to deeper joy and happiness. You'll struggle to find a generous person who isn't happy, To be open-handed and lavish with the things that God's placed in our lap does lead to abundant happiness, among other things. On On the other hand, your happiness will always take a hit if you do not practice generosity as we are commanded to by Jesus. So there are two examples. Maybe have a think about your own life. Think about the areas that might be robbing you of true joy because you're not more closely aligning your life with the teaching of Christ. Aligning yourself with the teaching of Christ is hard. It's tough. But I promise you that a road to deeper obedience will make you a happier person. So, we've looked at what the happy person does not do and what the happy person does. Next, we get a beautiful picture of what the happy person is like. Read with me. It says this. He is, like a, he is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now, what a glorious metaphor this is. Living in the Pacific Northwest... We don't have to go that far to find the kind of tree that the psalmist is talking about. If you've been to Eastern Washington, you'll see where some of the best apples in the world are grown. And it's a sight to behold. And it's an amazing thing to taste as well. As Debs will tell you, I uh, have a little bit of an apple addiction. 
So let's follow through the logic of this verse and learn the lessons that the psalmist is teaching us about growing fruit trees. Well, firstly note that it's not a wild tree that we're talking about here, okay? The tree has been planted. So it's not wild. It's been very carefully planted. Planted in a specific place so that it will flourish. Now think with me about your own life for a second. Have you ever stopped to think, why, why am I here in this, in this place in the year 2022? Why, why now? Why, why wasn't I born in 1822 or, or 2222? Have you ever recently considered the fact that God, in his divine wisdom, has planted you where you are now and that your place in this world isn't a result of random cosmic forces, but of a loving master gardener who has deliberately planted you in the space and time that you occupy and for a purpose. Your life matters. God knows every hair on your head. He has planted you. Not only have we been planted in a particular place, but I think, thinking even deeper, I think we've been, been planted in particular soil. God, as the master of the orchard, has painstakingly laid out all the groundwork for us. His digging involved him sending his beloved son into our world to show what God is like. Jesus displayed the supreme love of God by allowing himself to be brutally uprooted. Jesus was torn from the earth and nailed onto a different tree, the tree of Roman capital punishment, the tree of the cross. Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Do you see the symbolism here? Jesus Christ, the one who flung stars into space, the one who sculpted the mountains and the valleys and breathed life into every living creature, the one who sustains all life in the universe and holds everything in perfect equilibrium, the master of the orchard was nailed to a cross of wood. Jesus suffered the ultimate uprooting so that we could be eternally planted. The master of the orchard was wrenched from the ground so that we could be truly and completely forgiven of our sin and that we could put down deep roots into the rich soil of the gospel. He was uprooted so that we could be planted. God didn't just plant us and leave us to grow with no help. Note in the psalm, it says, he planted us beside flowing streams. Going back to the, the orchards of Eastern Washington, the best, fruit, the best fruit orchards in the world are painstakingly irrigated to ensure that the trees never go a day without the water that they need to flourish. Notice that it's not a single source of water, but plural streams. Any world-class orchard must have an unfailing supply of water locally for the trees to optimally grow. So what is the spiritual truth of this? What is the psalmist pointing to here? Well, 
Throughout the Bible, water is used symbolically. Let me give you a few examples. So in another poem, Genesis chapter 2, we read that the Garden of Eden has four rivers that water the land and make it bounteous and beautiful. These waters are symbolic for abundant life and eternal blessing. Another example, the Lord produces water miraculously out of a dry rock to quench the thirst of the Israelites when they're in the desert in Exodus 17. The water satisfied their physical thirsts, but it also pointed forward to a time when God would supply water that would satisfy their deeper spiritual thirsts. This theme is picked up centuries later in Ezekiel 36, where God directly refers to water in spiritual terms, as he makes a beautiful promise to cleanse and renew the inner lives of his people with spiritual water. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he builds on this theme, and he's in a conversation with a woman at a well in John chapter 4, and Jesus makes an utterly outrageous claim to this woman. He says that he is able to give her to give her living water, which will forever satisfy her deepest and most, yeah, most deepest thirst. And then a few chapters later in John 7, Jesus promises that if anyone believes in him, rivers of living water will flow from within. So this is the resounding climax of the biblical theme of water. Jesus talks about rivers of living water that will flow from within. And this helps us make sense of what the psalmist is talking about here, where, where they talk about streams of living water. Just as well-positioned irrigation leads to the flourishing of fruit trees, so Jesus' presence with us, mediated and made real to us by the person and work of the Holy Spirit, leads to a life of rich blessing. Put another way, we cannot, be ha- we cannot be happy without the day-to-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute replenishing work of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit gives us all we need to put down deep, strong, spiritual roots, which will enable us to weather the storms and droughts of life. You see, someone does not say that hard things won't come our way. Tragedy, loss, affliction, illness, financial uncertainty, family breakdown, betrayal and disappointment will all come our way as we navigate life in a fallen world. But the glory of this promise in this psalm is that our deepest roots will never lack water. It could be utterly barren on the surface. It could look completely dry. Life could be going so far from the happy life we wanted, but our deepest roots will never lack water, and so we will never die. Jesus promises us eternal life, eternal spiritual life, and ultimately he promises us long-term happiness if we, if we stay, if we cling on, if we don't turn aside. We'll always have the Holy Spirit. He'll always comfort us. He'll always console us. He'll he'll strengthen 
and he'll sustain us and he will lead and he will guide us. And nothing will be able to shake the foundations of our happiness. I mean, that is glorious, right? Nothing can shake the foundations of our happiness. We're untouchable. Anything can come our way. Like, I just think of the last year and I think about what's happened in friends' lives. Anything can come our way, but nothing can truly knock us down because our roots are so deep and nourished by the Spirit. Next, the psalmist goes on to the fruit that the tree yields. And it says that the tree yields fruit in season. Now, this is an interesting one. What does that look like for us in our spiritual lives? Well, God brings about the fruit of our obedience in his timing. So we might feel like sometimes we're going through life and we don't have a great deal to show for our devotion to God. But just like trees that go through seasons where they look like they might have died outwardly, inwardly, they are preparing for the next season of fruit. And so it is with us. Back in London, where Debs and I spent seven years as part of a wonderful uh, family of faith, we started a missional community along with some other people. A missional community is a small group of people who meet in each other's homes to pray, study, worship, eat together, fellowship with one another. And when the group was first formed, the initial 18 months were very awkward, very inconsistent. There's very low numbers, very low commitment levels. And it was draining to be a part of, honestly. Nobody, I don't think, could claim that they enjoyed that time together. But we, you know, there were times where we nearly sacked it off and said, you know, let's just call it a day and maybe it's just not going to work out. But then suddenly, just like with trees in spring, we began to see those little buds of growth, you know. uh, Debs and I have an apple tree in our garden and you see the flowers and I'm always like, get in there. I can't wait. That means that there's going to be some great apples uh, to be had in September. And that happened in our group. We saw the signs, of, the signs of life. And as we pressed on over the next two or three years, we went from strength to strength. And it's got nothing to do with uh, the leadership. I actually, stepped out of, <laughs> I actually stepped out of leadership, and that was when it actually started to flourish. So well, nothing to do with me. But it went from strength to strength. And it got to the point where we could barely fit in each other's houses. We saw people saved and baptized in our group. We saw people people in local council estates get free of debt and come into meaningful fellowship. We saw people whose faith was potentially stuttering. They were on that three-step process away from God. They were somewhere between walking and sitting. But then they went from strength to strength. They matured. They became pillars of the church. People, who, people whose faith you know, genuinely inspires you. The point I'm trying to make is it took a long time to see the fruit. And at times, the tree did look like it was dead and lifeless. But God was doing a wonderful work in and through that time. And it was all in his timing. And it was all for his glory ultimately when we think of God's promise that we will be fruitful we need to take a 5 a 10 a 20 year perspective I recently went to a vineyard in the UK 
where the owner had bought the land back in the 80s. And he'd you know, gone about this process of uh, renovating this place that was very run down. And he didn't sell a single bottle of wine until over 20 years after he initially bought that land. He waited a full 20 years until they, until they sold that first bottle. Fruit growing takes time, and it takes patience, and it cannot be rushed. But we can be encouraged that God, the master gardener, he knows what he is doing with our lives. He really does. He'll bring about fruit in your life in the right season if we keep holding on to him. Lastly, it talks about the the leaf that never withers. Now, if you remember, there's a a story where Jesus rebukes a fig tree because it doesn't have any fruit on it. And I always used to think that's, that's quite a harsh thing for him to do. But interestingly, it was supposed to be the harvest time. So this tree should have been bearing fruit. And trees where the leaves wither at the time where they're supposed to produce fruit, like our poor little peach tree at home, which we bought a few years ago, and just shrivels up every time it gets to summer, shrivels up. And one day, sadly, that poor peach tree will die. But on the other hand, on the opposite to that, as trees planted by God, nourished by the flow of the Holy Spirit, fruitful in season, we never have to worry that our spiritual lives will wither and die. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. My wife Debs loves to quote this verse to me. She's quoted it to me often. If God has planted you, God will continue to nourish you. You will bear fruit. He will keep you in him until the day you take your last breath and go to be with him forever. You do not need to worry about your leaf, your leaf withering. He will see you through to the end. Now, the final point that the psalmist makes is to compare the abundant life of the righteous with the life of the wicked or the ungodly. Follow, it, follow the verse with me. It says this. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Now, here's the power power of poetry in full effect yet again. The writer couldn't do a better job of highlighting the difference between the godly life and the ungodly life if they tried. On the one hand, we have this majestic fruit tree with its deep roots, its lush fruit, It's hardy longevity. And on the other hand, we have the chaff, which is lightweight, fragile, here one one minute and gone the next. In ancient times, when the grain was harvested, they would repeatedly beat the grain on the ground to dislodge the edible part, which was the seed, from the inedible part, which is the chaff. Then the, the grain would be thrown up into the air when it was a windy day and the wind would come in and blow away the chaff and it would leave behind the edible part of the crop. 
This, the psalmist writes, is a metaphor for life without God. Eternally speaking, a life without God has no meaning, no lasting significance, and thus no worth. It can seem to us that 70, 80 years maybe is a long time. And yet, if you're like me, we so rarely think about the eternal significance of what we are doing. If we do not love Jesus, if our lives do not revolve around him, if he isn't our true delight, then our lives will be like the chaff because we have cut ourselves off from the source of true life. We have, tr- we have chosen a life of perpetual drought, separated from the rivers of living water that Jesus alone can give. Psalm 1 clearly lays out two ways to live in this world. This is reinforced countless other, in other, other countless places in Scripture, but probably most clearly in Jesus' words in John 3.36 says this, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, there is no sitting on the fence with God. We either surrender our lives to him, trusting his words that if we obey him, we will enjoy the deep, lasting, eternal, blessed happiness that he promises us in Psalm 1 and elsewhere in Scripture. Or we choose to seek out happiness elsewhere, turning away from the true joy giver, from the streams of water that nourish the deepest roots of our thirsty souls. If we turn away from God, we will end up dried out, worthless eternally speaking. When the Lord brings in the harvest, which is used in the Bible to describe the judgment of God, without a connection to Christ, the sustainer of life, we will be like the chaff that blows away in the wind, weightless, useless, and separated from God forever. My prayer for you, if you wouldn't say you're a Christian today, is that you realize that this life is like a single drop of water in the ocean of eternal life. These 70, 80 years, we get if we're lucky here on earth, they're but a short dress rehearsal. It may look like you can continue living with your back to God and have a pretty good life, but just like a tree that is cut off from water can last a few weeks or months before its leaves shrivel, ultimately you will be left empty-handed and truly joyless if you keep walking away from the streams of living water. God is calling you. God loves you. God wants you to have life and life in all its fullness. If you ask him for forgiveness for the things that you've thought, said and done that have not been loving of God and others, he will cleanse you. He will remind you of the cross where he was uprooted so that you could be eternally planted. And he will remind you of the resurrection, which sealed eternal life for you. And lastly, he will fill you. Fill you with his Holy Spirit, the one who always provides you with the streams of living water that will satisfy your soul's deepest thirsts. 
If you would like to make this the day that you, that you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then I'd love to pray with you after the service. Or if it's more comfortable for you, maybe pray with someone who brought you along. Why not go and seek them out at the end of the service? And if you're a Christian today, and you'd like, for, you'd like prayer into anything I've said today, then I'd love to pray for you. I'll be standing down here at the front somewhere. And if you'd like to, I'd love to pray with you. So with that said, let me, pray, let me pray a general prayer for us all as we wrap up our time together in Psalm 1.